Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, August the 7th, 2020, and this is episode 2,707 of the Survival Podcast. At least I think that's the episode number. I'm going to double check that. I did that. Yes, it is. It's 2707 today. And uh, it is Friday, Friday, Friday. So that means it is time for another Expert Council Q&A show. And I do have a damn good one for you guys today. Uh, first up today, I've got for you Dr. Ken Berry talking about how the condition of diverticulitis uh, can impact your life and how that plays or doesn't play well with a keto diet. We also have uh, a segment from Chef Keith Snow on, on cooking with Thai ingredients and Thai ingredients in the pantry. We have uh, a question on generators for Derek Bonpietro, especially now that we are entering heavily into hurricane season. Another backup power question, this one for Sean Mills on inverters from your car and running appliances on them. Once we hear both of those, I have a few thoughts on choosing between a high-level inverter and a generator and why I would always come down on spending about twice as much and getting a cheap generator uh, if I had to make the decision between the two. Uh, next up, John Pugliano will talk about putting together a bug-out bag for ham radio operators. Then I have two segments. I have a little brief segment at the end because I'm getting a lot of questions about vitamin D from some of the recent content I've put out on vitamin D. And I want to clarify some things and I want to point out, like, there are things that I'll say, like, hey, you can do this, you're good, it's fine, don't worry about it. You know, I'm not making a prescription, but I'm saying this is safe. When you get into elevating... D and using uh, larger amounts of vitamin D, specifically significantly large amounts. So, you know, 5,000 is considered more than you should take. I don't care. You're fine. I even say 10,000 a day. You're probably not even going to, you're not going to have anything to worry about with one little caveat that I'm going to talk about today. Um, you go beyond that, you, and again, I'm not a doctor. You shouldn't do any of this without what we're going to talk about when I get to it. But, there's a lot of people out there taking 20, 30,000 international units of vitamin D or more. And I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying that I don't do it. I'm saying that as you do it, you got to be careful and you got to do some things. And I want to give you some more resources uh, so you can talk to your doctor or other healthcare practitioner and you can be safe if you're doing this. And above all, if you're doing it, you're doing it for a reason. Like you know why you're doing what you're doing. It's kind of important. And then I have a comment from Nick in Mongolia about UBI, also known as Universal Basic Income. I'm going to read his comment and give you my thoughts on why you really might see UBI in the next three to six years, like fully implemented that fast, and why it's a bad thing for liberty. It will be a bad thing for liberty. And the longer it's around, the worse for liberty it will become. And it's the same reason you give shit to your kids, because then you have something to take away. Anyway, with that, before we get into uh, our expert segments today, let's start off with a, uh, a quote today. Um, it amazes me how blind Americans are to the tyranny that's right in front of them. And uh, uh, Baron Montesquieu once said, There is no crueler tyranny than that which is perpetrated under the shield of law and in the name of justice. 
Now, you might be like, who is this Montesquieu cat, man? That is like, like the guy from, uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet. No, that's Montague. No, not Montague, Montesquieu. Montesquieu was a, uh, a French philosopher, statesman, etc. And his work should be better known to you, and you probably did hear his name uh, when you were in school. It's probably just one of those many things that you forgot because your teacher probably didn't teach it in a way that actually made it mean anything to you. But Montesquieu is really the source uh, in many constitutions, including our own, for the concept of the separation of powers. It really is. And he um, was doing his work right about the time, just prior to the American Revolution. And what often happens is a person like this will make some very valid points, and then if their philosophy is implemented, we'll say, well, see, we, we fixed it. Hey, that's, that was what they said we should do. The fact that we have created a system of government that has what we call, anyway, a separation of powers does not prevent our system of government from being a tyranny. And not necessarily just a tyranny of the majority, as our founders warned us, but any government has the capability of producing tyranny under the shield of law and in the name of justice. And all we have to do is look at an extreme example to understand this, like slavery. Oh, wait a minute. You thought when I said extreme example I was going to make up some bullshit out of nowhere, out of thin air that never really would happen? just to like be that way and then bring it back to something that could happen? No, slavery would be an example of a cruel tyranny that was perpetuated under the shield of law and in the name of justice in the United States and in many other nations. We often, uh, now that it's, it's, it's in vogue to hate America, especially if you're an American, especially if you're a spoiled, rich, young, white American, it's really in vogue to hate America. Um, we, we act as though America was the only country that had legalized slavery. Or even we were like the last people to get rid of it, because we weren't. The British got rid of it first. Yeah, and, and most of Europe didn't, by the way. Uh, legalized slavery's been around for about as long as there's been a legal system. There's still legalized slavery in the world today. That is, the tyranny of, of humankind perpetuated under the shield of law and in the name of justice. And how, how does it come in the name of justice? Well, if you're my slave and you're my property, then having you rightfully returned to me is in the name of justice, is it not? If someone stole my car, wouldn't, wouldn't it be the name of justice that it were returned to me? So if the law states that you are my slave, legally and rightfully my slave under the law, is it not in the name of justice that if you should escape, you should be returned to me? And, and this is the... The, the fantasy that we live in, that we're free just because we can vote, that we're free just because we live in a constitutional republic in the form of a representative democracy, that we're actually freer in a representative democracy than we are possibly under a monarchy. Pete Quinones was talking about this today on social media. He created a lot of re in the world already. I love watching people re. It's great. Re! Right? Tweaked out, screaming. Um... Have you ever thought about the fact that if you lived in a monarchy and you have a king, and uh, a real monarchy, not like a pseudo-monarchy, like, you know, remember King George, all that shit about monarchy and, and whatever, um, during the American Revolution, all those taxes that were levied on the colonists that made them flip out and finally, like, start killing people, shooting people in the face, and say, no, we don't want to do this anymore, all those, those laws like the Stamp Act and the Hat Act and... All of that shit, that was all passed by Parliament. 
That was all done under democracy. If you have just a king, if you have truly a monarchy, I'm not suggesting we should. I'm just saying if you do have just a king, just a monarchy, then, um, well, when you're being oppressed, you know who to blame. When you have a dichotomy, the separation of powers, everybody plays point and grab ass at each other. It's not my fault, it's theirs. And then the people just fall in behind their rulers. They call them leaders, but they're really rulers, and play the same stupid game and start throwing shit at each other. And they think to themselves, well, there's no reason to uh, have a revolution. There's no reason to put the ruler's head on a pike. We'll just vote harder next time. And then you have a cruel tyranny that is perpetuated under the shield of law and in the name of justice. There are so many things right now that you can be thrown in prison for or have your property seized for because they're illegal that in no way harm anybody. There's no justice. It's the name of justice, but there is no justice. There is no justice in throwing someone into a, a cage because they possessed or used a substance of any kind. If they used it on their own as a free and independent adult, even if it's really bad for them, there is no justice in throwing that person into a cage with people that actually are criminals that do other people harm to be raped and traded for sex because that's what you're doing. Can we stop pretending you're not? Can we stop pretending that when you take, you know, the e even a drug dealer, a dealer, somebody that dared transact with another person, dared do that freely of their own free will, and you throw them into a cage, you're throwing them into a place where they can be used and traded for, for sex and rape and murdered. Murder happens every day in our prison system. You're throwing people into that because you don't like what they do. You're doing it under the shield of law and in the name of justice. And what justice have you done? When, when law enforcement officers can pull somebody over and their only crime is that person has a lot of money on them. That's it. They just have a lot of money. Where'd you get it? It's mine. Where, where'd you come from? I don't like your answer. I'm taking your money. Goodbye. Are you arresting me? No. Are you charging me? No. What are you doing? I'm taking your money. Why? Asset forfeiture. You can't explain where it came from. I think something's wrong here. I can't prove it, but I'm taking it. It's up to you to prove that it's legally, your, rightfully your money, and it, it came to you in a way that makes sense, and good luck getting it back. And when you don't get it back, it goes to fund my operation. Perpetuated under shield of law and in the name of justice. What justice is there in that? I'm really wondering when some of you guys, and I am talking to my audience right now, Because there's a lot of you that are holdouts in this this, this self-induced delusion. I'm really gonna. I really wonder when some of you are gonna realize what tyranny you actually live under and have been living under, and many of you constantly defend. Those are just two examples of tyranny that is perpetuated under the shield of law and in the name of justice. There's no justice there. There's law, but what law? A law of God. A law of men? A law of nature? Which law? A law of the men in charge. It's not even a law of men. The average person who sees another person minding their own business will not go seize their property just because I don't know where you got that and maybe you got it somewhere you shouldn't have. It's not a law of men. A law of men would be if someone tries to take your property from you 
it is just and right that you are able to resist them, up to and including taking their life if they will not subsist, uh, 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 scale down their attempt to take your property from you. What am I supposed to do? Let you take my money because you don't like the way that I got it? Is that justice? Apparently it is. If I have a badge and you're driving through, I don't know, Tennessee, they do it all the time. Yeah. There is no crueler tyranny than that which is perpetuated under the shield of law and in the name of justice and believed by those who believe, believed by, and, and believed in by those who think they're protected by it. Goebbels. You know, you got, you've heard the name, right? Goebbels, Nazi, not such a nice guy. He said something to the effect one time that the, be, the, the propaganda was best when the people you're using it on believe they are acting in their own best interest. That's when you create a cruel tyranny that is perpetuated under the shield of law and in the name of justice by a guy whose name most of you are like, who, what? Who's actually, his work is the foundation of the Constitution that you live under and that your government wipes its ass with on a daily basis. But let's talk about something better than that, huh? It's a Friday. Let's do something a little bit useful. Let's talk about dealing with uh, a condition that is... More common in America than people would think, uh, diverticulitis, and uh, how that plays in with the keto diet and does it uh, with Dr. Ken Berry. Hello, Jack and listeners. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Matthew. Uh, Matthew is five foot seven, two hundred eighty pounds, and is has been trying to lose some fat on a keto carnivore diet, and recently he had a flare up of his diverticulitis. That landed him in the hospital for a few days. And so his question is, uh, how does keto carnivore relate to diverticulitis? What can he do to reduce flare-ups in the future? So first, let's talk about what actually increases your risk of developing diverticulosis and actually having flare-ups of diverticulitis. So the research is very clear about this. Uh, Obesity is one of the leading causes of diverticulitis. Uh, and almost everyone who's obese also has hyperinsulinemia or very high levels of insulin. And they also have insulin resistance, which means that insulin doesn't work so well in getting their tissues to take up glucose. Also, another huge risk factor for diverticulitis is smoking. I don't know if you smoke or not, Matthew, but if you do, you've got to wean down and quit that. Maybe switch to vaping. And then also eating processed foods. Uh, eating nuts and seeds has nothing to do with your risk of diverticulitis, but eating processed flours, whether they're the flour of wheat, rice, oats, or corn, or even for some people, if it's flour made from coconut or almond, this seems to raise your insulin enough to cause you to have diverticulitis flare up. So first and foremost, Matthew, it's your, it's your current obesity. That's, that's greatly increasing your risk of having diverticulitis flare-ups. So you gotta continue with keto carnivore. And if I were you, I would remove any flour or meal, including almond flour and coconut flour from your diet. Even though I know they're keto, uh, friendly, they're still too highly processed for you currently. You, uh, being as overweight as you are, you don't want to be eating any processed food at all. You want to be eating one ingredient, whole real food that's keto carnivore approved. So I would recommend that you, if you're just looking at your dinner plate, 
cover that plate with uh, two-thirds of the plate or even three-quarters of the plate with fatty meats. And then if you want a quarter or a third of your plate to be dark green veg, I think that's fine. But what we're trying to do with you is keep your insulin as low as possible, low normal, so that you can continue to burn off all the excess fat you have, but also not risk having a diverticulitis flare-up. Eating meat has nothing to do with diverticulitis. Eating one-ingredient whole uh, keto-approved veggies has nothing to do with diverticulitis. Eating nuts and seeds has nothing to do with diverticulitis. It's all about obesity, smoking, and processed foods, and hyperinsulinemia. Uh, so keto carnivore on, Matthew. I hope this helps you and maybe a few of the other listeners as well. This is Dr. Barry. I'll be back with you next time. So next up, I said in the intro that, that Keith Snow had a piece for us on Thai cooking and uh, Thai ingredients in the pantry. The, the, the answer he actually sent me is on canning tomatoes, and I'm going to go ahead and play that for you. And I'm going to hit him up and go, where the hell's my Thai cooking segment? Because I was really looking forward to that. Anyway, here we go on canning hey, tomatoes. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer a question from Darren in Missouri. Um, Darren, I want to answer your question about canning enchilada sauce. Now, uh, for the audience, the question was basically, um, Darren cans a lot of tomatoes using the water bath method, which for those of you that don't know is using canning jars and you um, peel your tomatoes um, and then you stuff them and their juice into sanitized canning jars. You wipe the lids, I mean the rims, you put on the lids and the band, and then you put it inside of boiling water, which depending upon your elevation will never get hotter than 212 degrees. And then depending upon the size of the jar and what have you, you know, maybe it's 25 minutes or so water bath canned. And that's a pretty good method because tomatoes have quite a bit of acidity in them. But when you're talking about enchilada sauce, Darren, you have lots of other ingredients in there, vegetable oil, flour, chili powder, um, and then the tomato skins are in there as well, garlic powder. All these different things in there um, would lead me to believe and to recommend that you use a pressure canning method. Um, and that's going to allow you to get well over 212 degrees. And if you think about it, if you go to the store and you buy a can um, or a jar of um enchilada sauce. I don't know if I've actually seen it in jars, but anyway, it's cooked at much, much higher temperatures than you can achieve in a water bath canner. So to be safe, um, you went through all the trouble of harvesting these tomatoes or buying them, I'm not sure, from a garden and you went through all the trouble to make this sauce. So I think a little effort here would be well worth it to make sure that you're making something safe for your family to eat. So I would look, um, if you find something called the Ball, B-A-L-L, Ball Blue Book, you could find a lot of different uh, recommendations in there on processing times. So I would find something similar to an enchilada sauce and then process it, again, using the pressure canning method. I do some pressure canning as well um, using an all-American canner, which is pretty darn awesome, and that is the way to make um, enchilada sauce safe. So I hope you have good luck with it. Jack, I hope you have a great weekend, and uh, hello to everyone out there in TSP land. Um, miss all of you and hope to uh, provide some more content in the future. Take care. Bye-bye.
All right, next up, uh, I got a question for generators for uh, Derek Bon Pietro. Derek, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from Affordable DC Generators. I've got a question from John about uh, generators for power outages. Figure I'd bump this one up. I've got another question in the hopper for generators as well. We just had a tornado rip through uh, a few days ago. Nothing bad, but power generators are certainly uh, a necessity during times like this, so let's get into it. John writes, I live in Florida and deal with a lot of hurricanes. I like to keep the refrigerator and chest freezer running, as well as the TV and box fan during the day, alternating loads as necessary. Then at night, switch to a window AC unit for sleeping. I know there are a lot of variables based on the load of each item. I've always understood to size a generator for about half of its peak power to keep it from working too hard and wearing out sooner. Is this right? What is a good rule of thumb for sizing a generator? Additionally, I'm looking at a dual fuel since I have lots of propane on hand and it stores much longer than gas. So let's roll back and talk about voltages and watts. So when we're talking about volts, you got 120 volt and 240 volt. 120 is going to be a typical outlet in your home, uh, a single cord appliance, uh, you know, basically anything that you're going to plug in. Lights, ceiling fan, box fan, microwave, all those types of items. They're 120 volt. They run off of one breaker off in the main panel in the basement or in Florida, wherever that panel is outside. Now, 240 volt are going to be items like electric stoves, hot water heaters, central air conditioning, deep well pumps, shallow well pumps are typically 120 volt. So those larger load items are going to be 240 volt. Now this is critical because the plugs are different and what you're going to power is different. You can't get a deep well pump or an electric stove off of a 120 volt generator. So right there we've got to classify what type of load it is to size the generator because the one he included in the link was a Sportsman 4000 watt dual fuel from Home Depot. That's a 120 volt. That's Kind of made for a, an RV because it has an RV plug on it, but regardless, doesn't make a difference. If we're dealing with 120 volt stuff like a window air conditioner, we can use that type of generator, or maybe like a smaller suitcase generator, like a like a Honda EU 2000. If we're dealing with central air or or anything that's 240 volt well pumps, you got to get a bigger generator that has that capability. So right out of the gate, let's classify that so we don't pick the wrong generator. Now let's talk about how much generator do you need for those particular loads. Now, we're only going to take one load at a time. So, for example, I want to run, say, the window air conditioner off the generator. We can go online to a chart. If you click the Home Depot link for that generator they gave me, it actually gives you a list of all the wattages. Now, they're going to be a continuous and a surge wattage. What that means is anything with a motor device like a compressor in an air conditioner, an air compressor, a refrigerator, it's an electric motor. When it kicks on, it has that instantaneous surge for electricity to get it moving. Once it gets moving, the draw goes down. Usually it's like half to a third of what the initial start capacity is. So we can either measure this directly if we have like a clamp-on amp meter. I'm going to say 99% of people don't have that or the knowledge to use that. So you can use a uh, kilowatt meter if it has that capability of measuring, or we can just go to the chart. Right in the chart on the uh, the ad says a window AC of 10,000 BTUs is going to have a, a running wattage of 1200 and starting of 1800 so right there if you were just going to run that window ac that's your sizing for a generator now obviously when we start adding loads we have to add them up if they're all going to be running at the same time now you can get away with running uh maybe the whole house or a couple of different loads but they won't be at the same time so if we have a small generator i could run the ac for a bit cool the room down shut the ac off get to the freezer or the fridge, run those for a bit, shut those off, and keep rotating through. So you can kind of get everything going, but not at the same time. There's a lot of options here, and it's based on budget, 
how much fuel you have on hand. You know, if you don't have much fuel, you might want to extend the runtime by shutting the generator down, which means we're not keeping loads on all the time. So, for example, you say, well, I want to run a fan. A fan is a load that should be running all the time because if it's stationary, it's not really pushing nice air past your face. So something like that, we got to run the generator all the time. A refrigerator does not have to have power nonstop. So you can run it for, you know, half hour, an hour, get the thing down to temperature, shut it down, and then come back a few hours later. So sometimes you got an option, sometimes you don't. You got to run it constantly. Now, my advice on this is maybe you want to do kind of a hybrid system. So maybe you want to buy a big generator that's going to do everything at once. You know, you can get a pretty big generator that's portable for $500 to $1,000 that can run the air conditioning, the well pump, so you can take a shower, run the washer, and then instead of running it nonstop, which is not good for fuel consumption, not good for the generator, you run that for an hour or two, powering the whole house, so you can do your dishes, do your laundry, you know, take a shower, get the house cool, shut that guy down, and then maybe move to a small inverter generator or maybe have a battery bank with an inverter so they can run the small constant loads, like if you want to have some lights on. You know, you don't want to go and have a large generator running nonstop, full scream ahead, and all you have on are a couple lights in the house. So that doesn't make sense. So it depends on what your capability. Can you build a battery bank, an inverter, and know how to use it correctly, discharging and charging batteries? Do you have that kind of budget? Or do we just need to keep it as simple as possible and, and easy to use? And we only get one purchase option, so we just got to get a generator that fits everything. As you stated, you typically want to work a generator halfway to its capacity or more. Anything less than that, you're really burning more fuel and making more noise than is necessary. So that's why I always recommend, if you got a small constant load, maybe get that generator off and run an inverter with a battery. So that's my personal opinion, if you can afford it. But you definitely want to use most of the generator's capacity and not just have the thing screaming away, not really doing much work. The dual fuel is nice if you have the propane on hand or, for example, if your house has natural gas coming to it, you can have a plumber pipe in a, a line going outside that you can hook your generator up to. Tri-fuel would be natural gas propane for a gaseous fuel and then give you gasoline as that third option. A dual fuel is going to be one of those gaseous fuels plus gasoline. So most of these you can convert back and forth by different jet sizes for the gaseous, and then you got the gasoline as a backup. Now, if you got the propane, fantastic. It stores forever. It's clean. It's easy on the engine. And, you know, it's almost endless depending on the size of the tank. In the event you want to conserve your propane, you can switch over to gasoline if it's available. So that's really a handy option. And the best part is that you don't have to use the gasoline unless you want to. So that means you don't have to put gas in it. So the gas inside of the fuel tank goes bad after sitting for so long. You know, you can shut the carb off and let it run dry and then switch to propane so you know you're not going to damage the carb with corrosion. So I think that that option is pretty handy. You know, a small generator is going to run a really long time off of a big pig in the back. Or you get some flexibility if you want to use something more of like a barbecue-sized tank. Of course, you got a lot less fuel in there, but it stores for a really long time, and you can get it filled up at a hardware store. My last thought on this is that you're looking at the Sportsman. In my personal opinion, I think, honestly, you're going to go with something like a Honda or something that has a Honda engine. So you know you're going to get a really good quality, long-lasting, commercial-grade engine or you're buying something else, and that could be anything. That could be your run-of-the-mill Amazon special, sportsman, champion, whatever. You're going to get a lower-quality engine. You know, all of these lower-end generators, they all use pretty much the same electronics, the same alternator. If you look at them really hard, if you go to the store, they're all looking the same on the inside, and then they just have different color paint on them. So 
Yeah, some come with different accessories than others, but realistically, quality-wise, they're pretty much the same same generator. So if you're buying a Honda unit or one with a Honda engine, that's going to be pretty much like the industry standard, one of the higher quality ones you can get. And then anything below that is going to be way cheaper, less quality, but obviously to a price point. Hondas are super expensive. Well, John, I hope that answers your question. Check out AffordableDCGenerators.com for a simple, inexpensive DC power supply solution. And, John, if you go with the battery bank and inverter setup, Affordable DC Generators can get that battery bank charged for you. Take care, guys. Kind of following right in the same vein, I have a question now for Sean Mills on using inverters to run appliances like freezers and refrigerators. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com. It's been a little while since I sent an answer in to Jack. I recently completed a move from Tennessee to Alabama uh, for my day job. Uh, so I'm now in the Birmingham area, but uh, I'm back and back at it. So I've got a question from Sean from Maine. He says, what inverter would I need to run a chest freezer or refrigerator? He actually sent this question into Derek Bonpietro, uh, but uh, Jack shot it over to me, so I'm going to knock this out. And um, I, I went ahead and emailed the answer to Sean also uh, because of his situation. I wanted him to have the information as soon as possible. Uh, but Sean says, I'm currently sitting in my house that has been without power for almost 24 hours. I'm concerned about my food. I have a 410-watt Shoemaker inverter that I tried to use to give some power to both appliances separately, but it failed miserably. I tried connecting it directly to the battery of my vehicle. The inverter just wasn't powerful enough. Also, would an inverter powerful enough to run a fridge or freezer be safe to use on a 12-volt car? Would the car's alternator be able to keep up with the draw from the appliance? Would I need to use a second battery in parallel with the primary battery? Any info would be greatly appreciated. Uh, then he says, thank you, Jack, and all the expert council members for everything you do for this community. Your willingness to donate your time to help us does not go unappreciated. Uh, so, Sean, this is a great question. I hate to hear you're sitting there with no uh, current solution, but hopefully this will help you out. Uh, most freezers are going to run on about a 1,500-watt inverter because they're only pulling six or 700 watts when running, but you have to ensure you can handle the startup load, which, as a general rule of thumb, is about three times the running wattage. Uh, so on the low end, you're going to want to find something in the that can handle a 2,000-watt surge. Uh, now, you can get a Energizer 1,500-watt inverter on Amazon today for $149. Uh, I personally like the 2,000 or 3,000 watt energizer inverters uh, that you can get on Amazon, which are 199 and 299 respectively. So you can go from the 1,500 watt up to the 2,000 watt inverter for 50 bucks, and the 2,000 watt inverter will handle 4,000 surge watts, uh, and, and and that will run just about everything in your house other than heating and cooling. Uh, your 3,000 watt inverter will run everything in your house without, other than the heating or cooling. Uh, now, if you're running this off your car battery, I wouldn't suggest trying to run everything in your house at one time. I would definitely stage uh, the appliances, and it sounds like you tried to do that, running them one at a time. Uh, but that uh, that 3,000 watt Energizer inverter, uh, mount it to a little sheet of plywood that you can just set on top of your engine. Uh, have some tools, you know, so that you can quickly uh, attach it to your uh, battery terminals, and, and it will do pretty much anything you need it to do. 
Uh, now, those inverters are perfectly fine to run on your car battery. Uh, your inverter is going to put out somewhere between 1,200 and 1,800 watts, uh, which, as I mentioned is, is above, is, is less than the running wattage of your appliance. Uh, what I would suggest is start the car. Let it run for about 10 minutes to top off your battery because the starter motor is going to pull some juice out of the battery to get the engine turned over. Uh, so let it run for a little while to get that battery topped off. Then connect your inverter um, and have someone get in and rev the engine up to about 2,000 RPM while someone else plugs the freezer into the extension cord that you've run from the inverter. Uh, when you do it this... What you're doing is you're getting the, in, the 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 engine speed up. You're getting that pulley turning because what's going to happen is, is as soon as you plug that in and that compressor starts to kick on and it grabs that big draw, your the resistance on that uh, uh, pulley on the inverter is going to crank up. You might actually hear a slight belt squeal um, when when that alternator resistance increases. That's normal, so don't worry about that. Uh, if you've got a, a car that when you crank up, uh, you hear some belt squealing on it, that typically tells you that either your battery or your inverter, or rather your alternator, might be getting ready to go uh, because it's really cranking that resistance down on your inverter. Uh, I'm no mechanic, but I know a little bit about electricity. Um, so now after about 30 seconds, uh, you can just let the car idle while you run the freezer. So that's enough time to get the compressor on, switch over uh, the process that's going to that's gonna, uh, cool um, the air going into your freezer. Uh, if you've got a freezer and a fridge, run one until the compressor kicks off, um, and you'll hear that. And then repeat the whole revving up process while you plug in the other one. Uh, let it go for about 30 seconds and then let it idle. Once your appliances are cool again and your food's safe, you can cut the car right off. Uh, your battery will be topped off at that point. Um, and, and one nice thing is, is to have a few maybe anchor battery packs. You know, you can plug your, uh, laptop in to charge while all this is going on so that once you turn, uh, the car off, you've got, you know, some juice in your other appliances. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely, uh, it's not a problem at all to run these type of appliances off of your inverter, rather uh, an inverter connected to your car battery. Uh, you don't need to add another battery to the car or anything like that. In the future, you might look at, you know, a couple batteries as a, as a backup power system that you could directly run your inverter off of, um, you know, in, in short-term uh, power outages, that type of thing. Uh, but yeah, I would go with the Energizer. Probably, I would go with the 2,000 watt. If I can afford the extra 100 bucks, I'd go with the 3,000 watt because uh, because that's going to take care of everything you you're going to need. Um, and I like the idea of mounting that to a little maybe two by two sheet of plywood, uh, maybe even with a couple zip ties that hold your tool set uh, that matches your battery terminals all in one spot. So you don't have to go looking for anything. You just crank the bad boy up. Pop your hood, sit it up there, get it connected, and uh, and you're ready to go to town. Well, actually, uh, let me rephrase that. Connect the inverter to your battery, then start your car. That's actually an important step. Um, but yeah, so I think you, if if you if you have the ability to you know get the 2,000 watt, that's the one I'd go with at a minimum. And and the 1,500 watt's going to handle most single appliances. 
so you could go with that, which, like I said, with Amazon's 149 right now. Well, hey, guys, with that being said, I do have a little bit of a backlog. I'm going to work through and get answers into Jack. Uh, but keep those questions coming about off-grid living, uh, renewable energy sources, um, you know, what to do in an emergency in terms of, of having some good uh, options for getting power into your house because everything runs off electricity these days. Kind of with both of these in mind, I want to talk to you a little bit about why I think inverters are a great idea. Uh, battery backup systems that are, you have chargers that you can use generators to charge are great ideas with inverters attached to those. Inverters you can hook up to your car are great ideas to run small things. Um, if all you have is a, an inverter and that's what you can afford in your car, you, you, that's great. Be careful. The, the, the good news is most of us have more than one vehicle. And what I'm going to highly advise you never to do is put an inverter on both vehicles, run them both simultaneously, and draw power from them. Because no matter what you do, you can, and possibly will, kill a battery while you're doing this. And if you can jump that battery from another vehicle and let it run and charge back up, it's not that big of a deal. If you run it to the ground and you have no way to charge your battery, that one source of backup power you have is now dead, and so is your vehicle. Yay me. So be careful with, with this because higher draw components like refrigerators and freezers can generally be run from your car with an inverter for fairly long periods of time without doing that. It doesn't mean that you will be able to, and it is inevitable in human nature to, well, I... I can run a lamp while I'm doing that, surely. It's got a LED bulb. It's not that much. And I can power up my laptop, and I can plug my phone in. And, ah, you know, I mean, uh, a fan. It's so hot now. A fan. And what ends up happening is you you push hard enough that you are able to out-pull what your alternator can give you and drain the reserve and you forget about it because you're busy and you're not doing this during the best of times. You see what I'm saying? You see how that goes? Where if we pick up something even simple like a 2,000-watt inverter generator, we're gold. It, you could, you know, five or, six gal uh, five or six gas cans and one of those and you, you get through just about any of these things. So I, I really recommend that you kind of go the generator route. I've got two generators to kind of recommend for you to take a look at today. They're both in the show notes for you. Um, there's not anything, surprise, surprise, um, on sale really cheap right now. Uh, there there j just isn't um, with generators. I, I kind of checked all of the generators that I would normally look out for on sale for you. And in storm season and generator demand goes up, you're a lot less likely to see one on sale. Um, the bigger one I'm going to talk about in a second, I recommended while I was away on vacation. It was on sale for like just under $800. bucks. It's like a $1,300 retail. It's, not, it, it's selling right now for $900 and something dollars. But let's talk about a 2,000-watt inverter generator. One that I would definitely look at, and I would rank this thing just under a Honda EU2000 for quality, for noise, for gas utilization, all of that, for a fraction of the price. 
It's made by Wen, W-E-N. It's the 56200i. And that brand new with free shipping to your door, and you will have it by next weekend or earlier, is $432. If you compare that to like Sean's 3,000-watt inverter that you put on your car, if you're not building a battery backup system with a significant reserve, what have you, and having a way to charge it, in addition to just having it be there, it's not that much more money. And it's a lot more utility. It's a lot more utility. The one that I recommended while I was on vacation that was just... Sean looked at this one when I posted it on Facebook. And it, I, I mean, I I knew it was a good enough deal that I, I recommended it even when I was away, when it went on sale a second time. And I, I brought it around to you guys first time in May. It's made by uh, Briggs & Stratton. It's an inverter generator, and it, it runs 4,500 starting watts and 3,700 running watts. It's not super quiet, but it's not super loud for what it is. It's easy to move around. It's easy to start. For most of you, it'll run everything that you need to be running at one time anyway. And, that, again, that generator has an MSRP of around $1,300. Um, it was on sale in the past. It has been on the sale before for under $800. That's the lowest I've ever seen it. I, I don't need another generator, and I almost bought one when it was that price. That's how good a deal it is. Right now, it's not it's not marked as on sale, but it's selling well under retail, $982. I'm not saying you should just run out and buy one of these. I'm saying if you don't own a generator and you're like, I want to do better than just a little one of those little small inverter generators, I would look to something like this if you have the money and if it's not going to set you back and put you out. Especially if you live in like a storm sector where it's a high probability in the next few months you're going to be without power. And this is one place to not wait till the last minute and certainly not wait till you need it to get prepared. The minute a storm hits and there's significant power outages, if you go to Home Depot, Lowe's, etc., you see almost no generators in stock. And the ones that you see are the shittiest ones that there are or the most expensive ones that there are. So then you, you have to choose between like garbage and a really good one. So before I would... Go get like the 2,000 watt when, if I had the money, I would look to something like one of the Sportsman 800 watt generators as a second generator, as a backup, and something like this Briggs as my primary. If I didn't have the money to buy the Briggs, I would, I would buy the when before I went and bought like two of the 800 watt generators. Because an 800 watt generator is not going to run for most of y'all, your, your higher end uh, refrigerators and freezers. It's not going to have the starting watts. Like Sean said, that initial kick to kick on. And the Briggs or something in its class, I I have to say the reason that whenever this subject comes up, I kind of harp on it a little bit. Of all the preps that we have put in place over the years, and this is going back to before there was a survival podcast. We're going like prior to 2008 at that point. So we're talking, you know, Dorothy and I, have always had a given level of preparedness in place. We've been together over 20 years. So we're, we're talking two decades. So in two decades of being a prepper on one, of one level or another, the number one preparedness item that has paid off for us has been our generators. Number one. The only thing that you might say has been relied on more are things like flashlights and lanterns, which are so you can set up your generator. So I just really, really, really recommend that you think about 
stepping up and, and, and doing this. If you want to wait on a really good deal for something like the Briggs or because other generators are like I don't I don't have a lot of loyalty like Champion makes good generators Honda makes great generators Yamaha makes good generators uh, Wen makes good generators um, I would still look at then something in the 2000 watt range 2000 watt inverter generator range that'll do most of what you need that'll get you through it and then hold out on the bigger generator but at nine, I think it's 936 is what it's selling for, the, the Briggs. Um, I mean, you're not going to say, gee, I wish I waited if you if you get the dadgone thing um, and you need it. You're, you're gonna, oh, it's 982. So, yeah, it's 182 bucks. I mean, if it, goes, if it goes back on sale like that, you could get one of these plus a sportsman for the price of just this. But I'm going to tell you, if 182 bucks makes the difference for you now, when your power's out, you'll you would gladly pay a thousand bucks for this generator to have it, if, assuming you have the money. So something in there, um, look in that range. I, I love the little 800 watt Sportsmans and the dirty hand tools and stuff like that. I recommend them. If that's all you can afford, that's all you can afford. But if you can afford any more, don't rely on that as your primary generator. Step up to at least your 2,000 watt range. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take one from John Pugliano. I'm putting a bug out bag together for uh, ham radio operators. Hey, TSP, this week we're going to take a break from financial questions, and I'm going to answer a question on amateur radio, and this was sent in from Ted in Orange County, and he says, for a ham radio operator, what would be your recommended additional gear for a bug out bag? I realize that this is a simple question with many possible answers, but I'm looking for your most generic, situational, agnostic response, if that makes sense. I have my own ideas on the subject, but I'm always interested in another Elmer's perspective. Okay, Ted, well, yeah, that question does make sense, and my answer is probably going to be a lot different from other people you might talk to because I'm not a big user of UHF, VHF radios. The UHF, VHF radios tend to be the small handheld, uh, we call them handy talkies. You've probably seen the brand name Baofeng and some other Chinese radios. There's obviously some really good quality Japanese radios that, that fit into that handy talkie category. And they're often the first radio that a new uh, ham radio operator will, will want to purchase. And I do own a couple radios like that. I'm just not really uh, much into talking on local radio repeaters, which are primarily what those type of uh, handhelds are designed for. So I'll give you an example of when a radio like that would be in my bug out bag. And that's um, because of a local wildfire. And in the area that I live, we have a lot of wildfire seasons and they come up quite a bit. And I know what repeater to go to. And I know where my local cert team and things like that will be communicating from. And so if I were evacuating my house because of a wildfire or if there's wildfires in my area, I would be on my UHF, VHF repeater. I have a long, flexible antenna on my radio that's probably around, I don't know, 18, 19 inches long. So I get pretty good reception and transmission with that. And because those radios are, are fairly simple, it really doesn't require a whole lot of extra gear or things to go in the bug-out bag. So I'd, of course, have the radio itself, an extra battery, and then, of course, the battery charging system. And other than that, the only additional thing I would bring along 
would be a programming cable. And along with that, in my bug out bag, I'm always going to be carrying my Microsoft Service tablet. And so with the tablet and that programming cable, I could make any adjustments on the fly that I would need to. Now, obviously, my radio is going to be programmed for the repeaters and all the information I need. But, you know, if I would happen to leave my area or if the designated radio frequencies would change, I would obviously need to update the program in my radio. It's very easy to do from my surface with that programming cable. But what I would really also recommend and what I would carry myself are the written instructions on how to do that manually. I don't use the radio enough to remember the exact sequence to how to manually program it. And while that's cumbersome and not something I'd really want to do in an emergency situation, if my tablet goes down or if I you know, don't have my programming cable, then I'm going to have to know how to manually go in and reprogram that radio because the radio is worthless if I don't have the right repeater frequency offset and the required tone. And so I would really highly emphasize anybody using one of these handheld radios, number one, either make sure you absolutely have memorized how to program it or carry those instructions along with you. Now, as far as my personal bug out bag, what I am more likely to have is a QRP radio, which is capable of transmitting high frequency. And the particular one that I carry is a very small uh, it has batteries where it's self-contained lithium rechargeable batteries. It operates on Morse code CW three bands that would be 20, 30, and 40 meters. And with that type of coverage, I'm mostly going to be operating on 20 meters during the day and then 40 meters at night. That would be adequate for my needs because I, I do know Morse code. I'm not really good at it. I'm capable of about copying at 10 words a minute. I can send at a faster rate. And the reason that that radio would be in my bug out bag for something other than a wildfire is because that radio really gives me not only U.S. but even global coverage. And so if there was a really major disaster, like in my area, you know, a devastating earthquake or perhaps where, you know, Jack lives down in, in Texas, there could be a, a real regional hurricane coming through in those type of really major disaster events. It's possible that the repeaters can go down. And that UHF, VHF radio isn't going to be a whole lot of value once the local repeater system's down. With my high-frequency radio, even though I'm limited to transmitting in Morse code, I can still listen in on all the emergency nets on 20 and 40 meters, and I can also check in or put out an emergency call with my 10 words a minute Morse code. And my QRP radio is very small. It, it measures maybe like 3 inches by 5 inches by 2 inches. And with that radio and my Morse code keyer, I would also bring along two wire antennas. One of those antennas is an N-fed half wave that's cut for 40 meters. I can make it work on 20 as well. And then I, as a backup antenna, I also have a random wire antenna that I can easily tune to just about any of the ham frequencies. And so I would be packing as well a very small antenna tuner. The one I use is capable of handling power of up to 100 watts, and I'm only going to be transmitting at, you know, 5 watts on my QRP rig. It's really overkill. But the reason I like this particular antenna tuner is that it's also something that I can use with my portable 100-watt radio. And this antenna tuner is, is manual. It's very small. It measures maybe 3 inches square. It's very lightweight, and it's extremely versatile. So with that QRP radio and those two antennas, and I guess I should add here, those antennas are probably something like 20-gauge wire 
They're the type with the silicon coating on them so they don't get all tangled up. And the wire antenna, along with the matching toroid transformer that goes along with it, I mean, those two antennas can fit in the palm of my hand. So they're very lightweight. They're easy to deploy. I just need to throw them up over a tree or get them up in the air. They're extremely efficient to transmit on. I've used them in a lot of situations, and I get really good reception and transmission from them. And using just 5 watts and Morse code, I've literally made contacts around the world with that radio system. Now, of course, Ted, if you're a radio operator, you know that there are also QRP radios that transmit voice communication as well. And at low power on single sideband, it's much more difficult to make contacts. It can be done. It's just much more difficult, you know, at 5 watts. And so that's why I wanted to learn Morse code. And then, of course, if I had my car with me or my bug-out trailer, I would have a radio in there that's capable of transmitting at 100 watts and That is really sufficient for voice communication. But to run that, it requires a 20-amp continuous power supply. And so that's why I like my little QRP radio. It's simple. It's effective. And when everything else fails, it'll continue to provide me global communication. Well, hey, Ted, thanks for your question. Next week, I'll get back to answering some financial questions. Until then, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. Uh, that brings me to my segments, and I've got two for you today. Just uh, some follow-up on D3, because I, I've, I've seen some questions that, again, they're starting to worry me a little bit um, with people talking about taking elevated doses of D3. I am not saying not to. I'm saying you need to do this in a very informed manner, and if possible, in conjunction with your doctor. If not, at least with getting good uh, readings on your D3 your blood calcium levels, etc. I cannot overstress how much I recommend Dr. Stephen Lewis at Green Wisdom Health for all of these types of things, not just this. And I think Stephen is probably going to start you off at a much lower dose of D3 than some of the things that you may decide you want to try. There's a couple things that I want to tell you about D3 Um and this could be for COVID prevention or it could just be for general health in, in, or for actually addressing some pretty serious health issues that people have been told there's no hope for, like MS. Uh, there's been some amazing work done specifically um, in, in Brazil and Portugal uh, with D3 and treating MS. And one doctor in particular stating that he's been able to stop the progression of the disease in its tracks and even reverse it to a large degree for up to 95% of his patients. So there is something here. That's that's not the kind of result you get and it's, you know, well, it just it, it's it's a placebo. Placebos don't get rid of MS, okay? It just doesn't. So, but here's a couple things that I've I've picked up on first of all. Number 1, the recommendation that you take K2 along with D3 no matter how much you're taking of the D3, 5,000 or more, um, is, is solid. K2 is a, a vitamin that most people are also deficient in. It really improves the ability of the body to use D3, but it also helps get calcium out of your blood. And when you take elevated D3, you can end up with too much calcium in your blood. That is the number one, not the only, but the number one risk. However, not all K2 is the same. And... A lot of the D3, including a brand I have previously recommended, I have no problem with the brand itself, but the the particular one, it's a D3-K2 together combination. 
And if you're taking one of those a day, I don't. It's five thousand, which is more than the government says. I wouldn't even worry about it if you're taking one. You start taking two or more, you might want to start worrying about it. And the reason is that it has got a, a, a couple varieties, uh, or a couple, a couple different kinds of K in it. And the K2 is what's called the MK7 variant. There's two different main variants of K2 vitamin, MK4 and MK7. People have reported when taking significant amounts of K2 rapid heartbeat, and it seems to be more typical with the MK7 variant. I am now taking the MK2 variant. I am taking the D3 as a single supplement and the K as a single supplement. I'm also, and this is not telling you what to do, I'm telling you what I'm doing. If I were taking... 5,000 IUs of vitamin D a day. I would take 100 micrograms of the K2 and, 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 and the 5,000 of the D3. That's what I would take. If I were taking 10,000, I would take 100 micrograms still of the K2 and the 10,000 IU of the D3. And I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying that's what I would do. And if I were taking, let's get crazy here and take 20,000, I would take 200 micrograms of the K2 and the 20,000 units of D3. Basically, per 10,000, 100 micrograms of K2. I'm not 100% on recommending that. I'm just saying it's what I would do at this point if I was going to do it. Okay? The issue is, if you're buying the combined product, you don't have that option. Generally, the, the, the 5,000 co combo option has 100 micrograms. So when you take 10,000, you're taking 200. If you take 20,000, you're taking 400. Got it? And the K2 can push calcium out of your blood to the point where you can have heart arrhythmias. Yeah, I'm not saying it will. I'm saying it can for some people. And it seems to be worse based on everything I've been able to gather so far with the MK7 variant. So you do what you want with that. I'm going to highly recommend if you are going to fool around with anything more than five to 10,000 units that you read all three books that I'm going to recommend for you today. I've read two completely, and I'm reading the, th the third one now, which is the most informative and most useful. The first one is called The Optimal Dose. I've talked about it before. Uh, Restore Your Health with the Power of Vitamin D3. The second one is called, and this is the one I'm reading now, and this one is incredibly eye-opening, How Not to Die with True High-Dose Vitamin D Therapy, Coin Numbers Protocol, and the Secrets of Safe High-Dose Vitamin D3 and K2 Supplementation. Uh, that one is like getting a medical, you know, like a doctor's level course in D. But if you're going to mess around with it at all at any kind of elevated level for whatever reason, I really recommend that you read it. And again, I'm only like 20% done with it. And it's changing my entire paradigm on this. And then the other one is called The Miraculous Results of Extremely High Doses of the Sunshine Hormone D3. My experiment with huge doses of D3 from 2,500 to 50,000 to 100,000 IU a day over a one-year period. This one's a little squirrely, but I've learned a lot from it anyway. The guy's kind of squirrely. I've still learned a lot from him. Um, all three of these, if you have Kindle Unlimited, are free. If you want to read all of them, I would say Kindle Unlimited is worth buying just to get all three of them for free. And then you can always cancel it. So I'm just saying, if you're going to mess around, especially anything above 10,000 IUs a day, which I'm not saying is safe by itself, I'm just saying, if you're going to go beyond that, then you owe it to yourself to work with a practitioner, have your blood levels checked, and be completely informed, because 
you might find it very hard to work with a practitioner if you want to do this. But specifically those of you that are dealing with things like MS and other autoimmune diseases, the How Not to Die with True High-Dose Vitamin D Therapy, uh, based on Coinumbras, who is a physician, not by him, uh, book, or if somebody loves dealing with this, or some serious autoimmune disease, get this book and read it. If nothing else, it gives you an option to explore, and it may not be right, but it's worth looking at. I have links to all three of them in the show notes today. So that's what I wanted to say on, on D3. Please use caution here. And please, if you're going to elevate, when you start using combos in elevation, you're elevating both, and maybe you shouldn't be. Please be aware of that. The two uh, brands that I'm using of D3 and K2, I have in the show notes for you as well if you want to see what I'm using. All right, I'm not a doctor. Please don't make these decisions based on my opinions alone. I'm trying to help you make a more informed decision, not tell you what to do. All right, so next, I'm going to be kind of short on this one because the show's going long, as always, on a Friday. But I, I read this comment on the blog, and guys, hey, come on, come on, comment on the blog once in a while. We, we have so much discussion on social media now, it, it seems like blogs are kind of so 2004, but it's the place where you know you're talking to other TSP people. Anyway, Nick in Mongolia, who's been a great contributor to the show for a very long time, um, in response to uh, the, the episode I did this week called Resist Domestication and Become a Feral Human, said, one of my biggest concerns with the likely future is a full implementation of UBI, is how it will further domesticate the populace into the state influence and control. I don't think UBI necessarily has to lead to that, but the way they'll want to implement makes it almost certain that it will end up being the case. Given this trend and direction towards domestication and the dim age, as Vin Armani puts it, maybe it's worth doing a strategies for living as an independent human in a domesticated world as a show topic. I'm not going to do that today because it's such a great idea for a long, full show. How, how do you strategically live in a world where most people are not going to be feral humans, which is just being a normal human. We talked about that. Like, feral pigs aren't bad pigs. They're normal pigs. The way a pig's supposed to live. A pig is not supposed to live in a pig pen. I mean, really, a pig is not supposed to live in a, in a Smithfield pork plant nor a pig pen in your backyard. A pig is supposed to live in the woods. That's where pigs live. They're a woodland creature. There's nothing wrong with a feral pig. You are not supposed to live completely under the control and the thumb of the state. You're supposed to live like a hunter-gatherer human in a modern world. That's how you're supposed to live. That, that's, that's the way we are supposed to live. But we are in a dim age. One thing I want to say about the dim age, when Vin Armani uses that term, he means it probably different than you think. Vin is speaking of mysticism, a new age of mysticism, um, which I won't go into today, but maybe we'll go into that someday, too. Um, but people being led by beliefs, and I think Vin actually believes some true, actual, mystical things going on as well. Um, me being more pragmatic as a deist, I believe that mysticism has power even if there's no mystics, no or no no root of mystical thing, right? So that the mysticism is only what is believed, and the mystic is only one that can make you believe, to the point where something becomes a talisman and you believe it will protect you even though it won't. During the plague... There were these medallions people wore. They were plague medallions. They were a talisman. They meant, if I wear this medallion, I'll be protected from bubonic plague. Bubonic plague didn't give a damn about that talisman, but people still wore them. I would have kind of thought you were kind of crazy if you said you wouldn't wear one. Make you think of a mask? Anyway. Um, but when, when, when most people hear that term dim age, and I think it's the way that Nick's using it, he's talking about an age where people just aren't all together there. 
which is also what Vin is talking about. Easily led, easily controlled, not quite so smart, not able to think for themselves. I, I, I'd be getting to call the, the two, you know, the 2020s the duh age instead of the dim age, the duh age, the age of duh. Just can't think for themselves. Well, if you want to completely domesticate an animal, we talked about this. How do you do that? You take it from its mother when it's young and you make it as dependent upon you as possible so that it sees you as the source of its food and protection. It sees you as everything. It sees you as no threat, even though one day you're going to slit its throat and eat it. I mean, you can actually, I mean, I don't agree with vegans, but you can understand where they're coming from when you think about it that way. If I raise chickens for meat, I have those chickens at the point they'll eat out of my hand, and one day I'm going to go out there and pick them up and hang them upside down and slit their throat and bleed them out and eat them. Your government wouldn't eat you. No, but it'll milk you and bleed you to death over the years, use you like a battery like in the Matrix, won't it? Well, what could make you more dependent on your government than to have a base income that provides you at least the ability to have a place to sleep, basic medical care, and food and water? I mean, maybe you live like a pov- impoverished uh, person in the in the you know projects or something at like that, but you you got that's your that's your bottom. You'll never go below that. As long as you do what you're told. And I want you to think about something we kind of mentioned today in the beginning segment on the quote of the day, slavery. I was doing some research into slavery in the United States and looking for confirmation that in many instances we hear about slaves being beaten and whipped, that slaves were whipped by other slaves. There might be a head slave that was in charge. And it's fuzzy in the United States. I know that's the case in many other places. It's fuzzy. It seems like it may be in some places and probably wasn't in many others. But as I was doing this and and looking for how slaves were disciplined and did slaves apply discipline to other slaves because they had positions as prominent slaves, I found something disturbing and really telling about the willingness of a slave to remain a slave as long as they don't believe they have a better way that they can go. It was said that many slaves, when they took a wife, they did not want their wife to live on the same plantation. They didn't want their wife to live on the same plantation. And they didn't want that to happen because they knew they would have to watch their wife be abused and maybe beaten in front of them and not dare do a thing, lest they be beaten or even killed, as an example. So it would be better, knowing your lot in life as a slave, to have the woman that you love the most if it was going to happen to her not having to witness it on a daily basis. Because then if you rose up and they took you out, she would be left alone. And at least by complying, she had you. You can understand what that would do to a man's mind. But I want to ask you something. Why didn't more of them run away? If they lived on, or worked on different plantations, but lived together, doesn't that in of itself mean that they were in some ways free to move about? Oh, it was hard. You know, where people would come after you and whatever. Harriet Tubman said that they could have freed dozen, a, a dozen times 
the slaves they freed if only they would have been willing to leave. Because once a person sees themselves enslaved and actually considers themselves a slave, they truly are a slave. And just because the word you use is a different word, like citizen, if what it means is slave, it's just as powerful. In fact, more because you're convinced you're free while you're being a slave. And I would say to you, in this country, given that our labor is taxed, that means the government owns a portion of your labor. That's what it means. The government owns the portion of your labor that it decides to take. How much of your labor do I have to own before you're my slave? That's a big difference than you working for me, isn't it? I mean, if you work for me, I don't own your labor. I pay you, you work for me. I say I'll give you this much an hour, you agree to it, you work for me. I don't own your labor. You own your labor, you're selling your labor to me. And if you wish to cease working, you leave. I stop paying you. You don't own me, I don't own you. But if it works out to where Jack Spirico, just think of it this way. See, we, because we've, we've ascribed the government uh, absolution that we would never ascribe to anybody else. Let's say that by some legal means that Jack Spirico acquired over you the right to 15% of your labor for the rest of your life. Aren't you my slave? No matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter how much money you make, I get 15%. How are you not my slave? And if I have the right to trade that with another person, say, hey, you know, Bill, Tom, Nick, whatever, I own 15% of Bill's efforts and labor forever, in perpetuity, for the rest of his life. And uh, would, you, would you like it? Because I'll sell it to you. Or, hey, given I have this, can I borrow money and use him as collateral? How much more of a slave can you be? I just described to you how income taxes and national debt work. Okay, now let's add to it. Part of what made those slaves so controlled was they weren't just provided food by their masters. They were provided housing. Yeah, it was shitty housing, but it was a place to live. Imagine by the time, you know... The, the country was founded, not even up around the Civil War. Just by the time this country was actually founded, Revolutionary Wars over, the multi-generational slavery. Men and women who had been born the children of slaves, who had born the children of slaves, who had been born the children of slaves. What possible reality was there that the majority of them would have been ready to revolt and walk away and fight back in any meaningful way or simply slip away in the dark of night? Mostly they were unguarded. Mostly, one of the reasons the Underground Railroad worked is if you really wanted to leave, you, you could get away. I didn't say you could leave because they wouldn't let you, but you could get away. It, it actually wasn't that hard if you really, really wanted to. I'm not defending the institution in any way. And if you think I am, please start filtering the fluoride out of your damn water. I'm pointing out an irony. That people that desired freedom did not take the opportunity to obtain freedom even when the opportunity existed. And even when the alternative was one of the most horrific ways humans have ever been treated by other humans. And I'm asking you, if that can be done, how much leverage does the government have the minute it starts giving every citizen a check for $2,000 a month 
for the rest of their life, as long as they're good, as long as they do what we say they should do. Don't even worry about whether it can be done financially, bankrupting the country, hyperinflation. Don't even worry about that. Because there's ways to get around that. There's lots of ways to get around that. There, I know you don't think there are. I'm sorry, there are. I'm not saying we should do it. I'm saying don't worry about that. Think about the control. What if I just turn off your money? Especially in a world that goes and relies largely upon automation, where a man can't quite have the ability to make the living that he can day to day. Also, if you've ever talked to someone who's been to prison, even if it was a nonviolent but a felony, it's, it's very hard for them to find work. There's a stigma. You don't think a few years into this there's going to be a stigma of, well, why are you willing to take this job? This is kind of a shitty job. Because I lost my UBI. Why'd you lose your UBI? Don't you think on a, don't you think on a application it might even say, have you lost your right to UBI for any reason? If so, please explain here. Do you, can you imagine the leverage? It could be exhorted over people with this. That's why it's scary. I would say that if it came with zero condition, I don't care if you go to prison, you still got your UBI. It's accumulating while you're in prison. When you get out, it's there for you. Oh, my God. Nope. That's the only way it could ever possibly work. And if you want proof that I'm right, look at an Indian reservation. Where everybody on that reservation gets a monthly stipend, And if you look at it from a standpoint of what can be done with that stipend, they, the, the, the Indian reservation should be the wealthiest pieces of ground on the planet. An American Indian reservation should be the wealthiest group of people in the country. They should Maybe not like tycoon, cozillionaire rich, Jeff Bezos rich, but for average Americans, they should be in the top 1% of wealth. Generational wealth by now. And they're the most impoverished people in the country. And that's because if you give somebody money, but you give them conditions under which they must remain to keep receiving that money, in a couple generations, they will not dare lose it. If you want the final nail in the coffin of liberty in this country and in the Western world, it's UBI. And what's sad is it doesn't have to be. A universal basic income system could be one of the most liberating things in the world well, until you put it in the hands of the state. And as soon as you do that, the moment you do that, it becomes, in the words of our quote of the day, well, a cruel tyranny that is perpetuated under the shield of law and in the name of justice. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you want to help support this show, you can become a member. There's a sale going on right now. The discount code is Delta Force. You can get the discount or you get the membership for 25 bucks a year. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and while you're signing up, use the code Delta Force. Remember, I take cryptocurrency. Quite a few people paid with cryptocurrency this week. Um, if you don't see the method of crypto on there, get in touch with me. We'll work it out. Uh, you can definitely pay with uh, cryptocurrency. You can extend with cryptocurrency. You let me know. Uh, we can do that as well. And I also want to remind you guys that you can help support us by doing your online shopping. Where? Tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z. Tspaz.com. 
Today's item of the day is a really super simple item. It's um, it's made by a company called Zycom, Z-I-C-O-M-E. And they're, it's a little set of four basting brushes. They're like seven bucks for like basting, you know, barbecue sauces and things like that on your meat when you're grilling. And the way I described it when I shared it today on social media is once you see the solution that, that these, these, these guys have to a problem, you'll wonder why anybody ever built them any other way. And as far as I know, Zycom is the only company that builds these brushes this way. What I have found is that the silicon basting brush for most of your grilling, not all, but most, like there's the big, there's a place for the big barbecue mop, okay? But for most of what you're gonna cook when you're cooking on the grill, you're cooking on a griddle like the Blackstone, you're, you're using frying pans, carbon steel skillets, et cetera, and you want to do basting, that, that absolutely silicon is the way to go. If you hit a hot grill surface, it doesn't singe, it doesn't burn, it doesn't melt. Um, they're great. They hold a lot of liquid when you're basting with them, but they don't get goopy and gloppy and flop all over the place. The problem is every one I've ever bought, every one I've ever owned except these, they have a body and the head is made of silicon and the head sticks onto the body. Inevitably, the head falls off. It gets loose, it changes with temperature, whatever happens, it gets loose and it falls off. And once it does, you can stick it back on and it will always fall off again forever. And you will hate it, and you will throw it away, and you'll buy a new one, and you'll bitch, but you won't bitch that much because it's not that damn expensive, right? But you'll also think, why? Why the hell have they done this? What Zycom did is they made the entire brush from a single piece of silicone. They're molded from one, just like, you know, those silicone baking trays, like muffin tins? They just make one piece of silicone and shape it a certain way. The bristles are just molded into the brush. Like, there's no, nothing to fall off. It's all one piece. You get four of them for like seven bucks. And you just look at it and go, why did anybody ever build them any different? I also give away one of my go-to uh, basting sauces in the write-up today if you want to check that out. And if you were on the Daily Mail, you'd get an email and it would be in there and you wouldn't have to remember to go look at it. So get on the Daily Mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on subscribe, fill out one little form, and you'll get a Daily Mail, which is just an email that says, hey, here's what's new on the blog today and here's some other stuff. And it's always just a blurb and a link. That's all it is. There's no graphics or any kind of crazy shit in it, and I don't share your information. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. I was looking for a great song to end the day with today. And for those of you that have been wondering what's going on on Facebook and not putting it together, you're going to kick yourself when I tell you what I've been doing all week, and I might keep doing it on my personal Facebook pages. Sometime in the morning, I post one line from a song, and that's the song that's going to be the song of the day for the episode for this day. And uh, today's is uh, a song called It's Time Like Times Like These from the Foo Fighters. Uh, David Grohl, uh, for, formerly of uh, Nirvana, is the guy that uh, fronts that band and, uh, and, and wrote this song. It's one of their more popular and more successful songs. The line that I put up today out of this song is, I'm a wild light, blinding bright, burning off alone. And I just have always really liked this song, and I kind of wanted a song to end this week that kind of had a fighting spirit in it. Something that kind of made you say, like, stand up, make things happen, do things for yourself. And I think that what's interesting is we're often accused in the world of freedom and liberty of wanting to be isolationists. And I, I've been saying since we started the Goose Group up, right, like, 
We do not seek to be to be alone just to be left alone. Those are two very different things. But there is something about the person that steps out and fights. They do become kind of a, a blinding light, a wild light, a beacon. And what ends up happening is they seldom end up staying alone. You can be you could accuse libertarians, anarchists, agorists, etc. of being isolationists, but we seek community more than anything else. We just kind of want to be able to do our thing without being interfered with and without interfering with others. You know, it makes me think today I, I saw a, a person who's a very left-leaning person say that the uh, the golden rule should have been more about loving other people the way you wish to be loved. And I said the golden rule. The golden rule should simply be don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. And it's amazing that you have to fight to take that position. But it's worth fighting for. And it's times like these when you have to make a decision. Are you going to kneel down and accept things the way they are because that's the way they've always been? Those are the slaves that stayed on the plantation. Or are you going to stand up? Sometimes standing, the next thing you do is run. Sometimes you stand and fight. Sometimes you stand and run. Sometimes you stand, you run. You get a superior position, and then you fight. That's called strategy. With that, hope you guys had a great week. Hope you have a great weekend. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
It's times like these you give and give again. It's times like these you learn to love again. It's times like these, time and time.